Hi, Nancy. Hey, Shane. So you were just out in the field. I was. I was just out in the field. I was teaching in the field. Teaching in the field. So that leads us to the question. The question. Um, I'm not going to call them failures, but, you know, when things didn't go quite right for you in the field, how many of those have you encountered over your career as like, a scientist? Like when I was a researcher? Yes. Uh, um, I don't think that that ever actually Oh. <laughs> Oh, I guess you're perfect. No, no. I I was just, I was, let's say I was incredibly fortunate that um, I I reached low and (laughs) it was. That's a a good way. That's good. Aim low. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So it was, it, it worked out fine. What about you? You were, you used to be a scientist. I had lots of failures. Perhaps probably I became a journalist. Right. Yeah. Anything exciting or. I feel like this is not really a failure. I feel like we just didn't know what we were doing when we were undergraduates in the lab. That sounds right. Yeah. I feel like that's most grads. That's probably most undergrads. I mean, that's how I was. I mean, I'm sure there were times when, like, I feel like there was, um, there was actual mercury, like, not contained somewhere oh. in the lab, and, like, we didn't know what to do and just put it down a drain or something. That is not good. <laughs> no. Not good no, at all. Well, no. uh, so we're talking about this yeah, because it's that time of year where folks are out in the field or in the lab or whatever it is. And I guess we're going to hear from some folks who will tell us about times when things didn't quite go according to plan. Welcome to the American Geophysical Union's podcast about the scientists and the methods behind the science. These are the stories you won't read in the manuscript or hear in a lecture. I'm Shane Hanlon. And I'm Nancy Bompey. And this is a special edition of Third Pod from the Sun. All right. So uh, we're actually going to bring in one of our co-producers, Josh Spicer. Hi, Josh. Hello, Shane. Do you want to explain what this all what this all what is this all about what is this all about <laughs> so we uh out, did some outreach to uh all the agu scientific community and basically asked folks for their stories of where they've had some mishaps or um, trials and travails in the field and we got a number of stories that were sent to us and then we uh recorded those stories for which you are now going to experience them great um all right well who do we have first first our first fail well our first mishap comes from christine bassett a phd candidate at the university of alabama so my name is christine bassett and i'm a phd candidate at the university of alabama and i use the chemistry of seashells to tell me about the environment that they were living in so what the salinity of the water was the temperature of the water and sometimes even the nutrient flux so in order to be able to use seashells to tell us about the past we have to study modern species of seashells or modern species of mollusks to tell us a little bit about the relationship between the chemistry in their shells and the chemistry and the temperature of the water that they're growing in And so we collect live specimens of different species of mollusks um, so we can do a chemical analysis of those shells. And so in my work in the Aleutian Islands, that has involved scuba diving and digging into the, the sediments to be able to tell us or to be able to find where those shells are. And so that might sound a little bit easy, but if you've ever gone clamming before on the beach, it's not easy on land and it's even harder underwater. And so uh, we, my dive buddy and I, who works for Alaska Sea Grant, we devised a method where we would rig up this PVC pipe to a scuba tank. And it was we were going to run it in reverse, kind of like you do with your vacuum cleaner. But it's going to suck out the sediments 
so that way we can quickly dig down into the sand to find the clams and put them in our bag. And we thought that was a fantastic idea, but what had happened, you would think scuba divers would know this, but what had happened was it sucked up all the sediment like we wanted it to, but then the sediment just fell right back down on top of us. So we couldn't see anything and we were diving in basically zero visibility and decided that that was not a good idea. Let's call the dive and try again. That was a massive fail. And we were pretty disappointed because we spent months planning up, you know, planning out how to rig this thing up to the scuba tank. And there you are in the middle of the Aleutian, the Aleutian Islands. And, you know, there's only so much troubleshooting you can do because there's not a Home Depot right down the road to to, to help you out. And so um, they do have some shipping supply stores and some, you know, basic supplies. So we ended up going and buying just a hand rake for a garden and a hand shovel. So we took that and tied it to like a neon yellow line. So we wouldn't lose it and tied it to our scuba suits. And we, um, we went and started raking away at the sediments to try and find them then. And we did find them. We were somewhat successful. If you've ever scuba dived underwater, the way that you can find mollusks, especially the kind that like to burrow, is by seeing their little siphons sticking out of the sediments. And so we would look for these siphons and we'd find them and we'd grab it and then hold on to the siphon while we dig away with the hand rake. But these things burrow really quickly and ferociously. And so what would happen is their little siphons would just pop off. <laughs> and so it was sad for both, the, for both the clam and for us as well. So that was also less successful because we were not fast enough at, um, at raking away the sediments as they were burrowing. And so what we ultimately ended up doing is just using the ecology around us to help us figure out where they were. It turns out that there's a, um, a type of sea star called a Pycnopodia sea star. They're these, you know, they're those massive purple sea stars that have like, I think it's 16 legs. I'm not, I'm not a biologist, so don't quote me on that, but 16 legs. And, you know, what they do is they extend their stomachs to eat these clams and they're really efficient at digging down into the sediments and finding them and pulling them out. And they, when they extend their stomachs to eat those clams, they bulge up in a way that's pretty to, it's pretty easy to, to notice. And so at the end of the day, our most successful strategy was looking for all of the Pycnopodia sea stars we could find that were bulging up, flipping them over to see what they were eating. And if they had the clam we were looking for, we'd steal their dinner and put it away in our bag and turn them back over and send them on their way. <laughs> oh, so they look for the sea stars to they find did. the clam. I know. That's, that's pretty smart. That's pretty good ingenuity. I yes. appreciate that as, a, as an ecologist. All right. So our next story comes from Ryan Fote, an associate professor in the Department of Geography at Ohio University. Yeah, I'm Ryan Fote. I'm an associate professor here in the Department of Geography at Ohio University, and I teach meteorology classes here at Ohio University, and then I also do research on Antarctic climate variability. You go through like a, a survival trainings class um, where you camp out overnight on the Rossi shelf. You build a little igloo and learn how to make blocks and protect yourself from, from weather, how to put a you know, stove together and make fires and put, pitch a tent, uh, collect waste because waste is collected on the continent. It's not, not um, left on the continent. And yeah, you go through this this exercise where you try to like do a rescue for a comrade who's lost in a snowstorm. 
and you it's really kind of a fun exercise where you put these white buckets on over your head and so like you're you're in a snow blindness scenario where you can't see because of this blowing snow or or just whatever uh and you have one colleague that you're trying to find and you have to develop a strategy with your team uh to find that lost colleague and i, I think it'd be fun to be that last that, that person i've never actually been the the, the person that's you know, lost because you could see the whole team trying to find you with buckets on their head. Uh, <laughs> and uh, the strategy, ultimately, uh, our team, uh, my day, did not find the colleague. Um, I think we would have if we were given more time, but they, they cut us off after a bit of time, um, probably because we were doing the wrong thing or going in the wrong direction. But um, then we then we debrief about what we did wrong and what the ultimate strategy is to, to find people and so that you can learn from this in case a situation would happen when you're on the field. We were trying to take a rope and do concentric circles from a fixed point out from that rope, ah. which I think is the right strategy uh, because you won't walk over your path more than once, um, essentially. But what was happening was that we were not walking uniformly. And so people were walking faster than other people. And so we ended up not doing concentric circles, but more rather jagged paths that were at crossing each other and colliding with each other somehow, even though we were all holding on to one rope. Um, we, we, because we were just disoriented so badly, we, we ended up going in the wrong direction. And I remember falling down several times, actually, just small little changes in the elevation of the, the snow <laughs> would cause me to just trip and fall. And then I'd stand up and I wouldn't be pointing in the right direction when I stood. And so, <laughs> um, you know, it was, I think the, the right strategy is these concentric circles from a fixed point so that you're continually expanding your search area um, with keeping a, a, a bearing at a fixed location. But um, we were not successfully doing that. So. <laughs> I have so many fond memories of that snow school. Um, <laughs> just just the people hanging out with them, just talking and getting to know other people and some of the failures that we had in what we were supposed to be doing that we didn't do quite successfully. Another one was um, lighting the stove. Uh, <laughs> so uh, we had neither of us, none of us had uh, uh, actually camped where we had a stove for whatever reason. And uh, so our first experience of this was in Antarctica. And we were filling the, the, the oil into the, the stove and we spilled a bit of it. Um, so we, we, we thought, oh, it'll just evaporate away. No problem. Uh, we go to strike the match oh, to no. light the stove. And apparently we had spilled a lot more than what we had because the bottom of our tent immediately caught on fire. And we're all like in a panic state of shock, like, oh my gosh, we're on, the tent's on fire. What do we do? And we're all just like watching it, but like in disbelief that it's on fire. And uh, what's really funny is we had a, even a firefighter out with us, uh, one of the McMurdo firefighters and doing the snow school with us. And he's also was like, whoa, you know? And uh, yeah, and we were like, tried to pour water on it. That was a mistake. Um, so we ended up, you know, getting it under control by blotting it. Um, but uh, just this idea that there's this big fire all of a sudden um, that, that pitched in the bottom of our tent. Uh, it, yeah, it was an adventure. <laughs> when you first read Snow School, like, I love winter. Like, this oh, sounds, sounds cool. I know, this sounds but really then... exciting. And then you read, or I guess hear, like, the rest of this. And it's like, oh, there's a lot that could go wrong. Yeah, it's hard. <laughs> Snow School is hard. <laughs> Um, so next, um, next up, we have Sandra Schumacher with the Federal Institute for Geosciences and Natural Resources in Germany, who proves that research mishaps are a universal phenomenon. 
Well, my name is Sandra Schumacher. I work for the Federal Institute for Geosciences and Natural Resources in Germany. And right now I do uh, work in characterizing rocks for a potential nuclear repository. We uh, put rocks into a triaxial apparatus, uh, apply pressures and uh, temperatures and look how the rock behaves and when it fails and uh, to figure out what conditions we should avoid in a nuclear repository. It was uh, when I was um, still in my studies and uh, I did field work in Troy, doing magnetic measurements for the archaeologists there. And... Um, well, yeah, we were three students there and we had an epic fieldwork fail, at least from our point of view. <laughs> if you want to do magnetic measurements, um, you have a magnetometer in order to do the actual measurements and you have a base station to record the diurnal variations of the magnetic field. And um, in order to save uh, weight and space for transport, we had a very fragile construction to mount the base station, just a two meter long uh, fiberglass pole, uh, two, uh, three ropes and tent packs in order to fix it. And um, yeah, that worked pretty well. It always did in Germany. Uh, and then one day in Troy, we were standing there and uh, saw a donkey coming along. And we tried to uh, shoo it away, but it didn't work. And, well, I don't know if the donkey was just curious or wanted to scratch its back on the fiber pole, but <laughs> end of story, the base station came crashing down and we were horrified. <laughs> I mean, you don't want to crash your equipment from two meter high down onto the ground. And yeah, it was just awful it was awful because we were in the field we couldn't check if it, if it was still working and we were really okay if this base station is now broken the rest of the field campaign the another two weeks of work will be futile because we have we don't have the the corrections we need and um also, how do you explain this to your supervisor? Well, the base station's broken, but it wasn't us, it was the donkey. Fortunately, we told him afterwards in the, in the evening, we checked our equipment and realized that the data were corrupt for that day, but that the, with a little bit of tw uh, fixing, uh, we could uh, repair the, the base station and just the connections to the data logger were a bit shaky. So we could fix that and, well, we just lost one day of data, but not the whole campaign. So we were really, really relieved. After some time, the donkeys just, donkey just left. I mean, we le uh, later learned that uh, it's pretty common to have free roaming donkeys in Turkey. So they can also show up on the street if you turn a corner or so. But yeah, we, we didn't take this, this issue of free roaming donkeys into account when we uh, fixed our uh, equipment and decided to have such a fragile construction. Yeah. <laughs> I, I feel like 
free-ranging donkeys would be, or I guess free-roaming, either. It doesn't, doesn't matter. Be, like, a really great name for, like, an indie band. Totally. Like, I could just see, like, that, like, coming through my feed. Oh, like, my God. Free-roaming donkeys? Would they be, yeah. like, sort of, like, I don't know. Like, electronica, maybe. <laughs> Some, like, a little, like, whimsical. I love it. All right. Uh, next up, we have Angela Marusiak. She is a graduate research assistant at the University of Maryland. My name is Angela Marusiak. I'm a graduate research assistant at the University of Maryland, and I study planetary seismology, including ocean worlds. And part of that research is going to really interesting and remote field sites. One of the really exciting um, field opportunities I had was to go to the site in Northwest Greenland. Greenland is an analog for ocean worlds, which are these icy bodies that are covered in ice and could have oceans underneath them. So like Europa and Celadus. So the idea is we can use places like Greenland that have really thick ice to test out equipment that could maybe fly on a future mission. So I was really excited to get to go out. I'd previously done some field work in Alaska on a similar project um, and it went really, really well. My advisor and some of our other colleagues went out in late May and June to install our equipment. And um, their campaign was really successful. Um, the installation went well. It wasn't without hiccups, but in general, they nailed everything that they wanted to get done. They did so well. And in fact, my advisor came back and said, you know, we got some really great data. It'd be really awesome if you could find time to do similar experiments and, you know, really, you know, hit it out of the park. But basically, uh, within a few days of us heading out into the field, things didn't quite go so well. So the original plan was we could take a military plane from BWI in Baltimore, right up to Thule Air Force Base. And then from Thule, we would spend about two or three days there before heading into our field site to spend about two weeks there. So we were going to fly out on a Wednesday. And on Monday, we got the notification that we couldn't all fit on the military flight. We'd have to fly commercial. Okay, cool. <laughs> um, so, you know, you have your like brief moment of panic. All right, we got to book new flights. So instead of flying direct, which would have been maybe a six-hour flight, we ended up having to fly to Reykjavik, Iceland, uh, transfer airports, spend an overnight in a small village in southwest Greenland, and then fly up to Thule the next day. So instead of six hours, it basically became like a 48-hour ordeal. So we get to Thule, and we find out that odds are we weren't going to be able to head out into the field the next day. So we get to the field by flying on a helicopter. And helicopters tend to be limited by the weather more so than planes. They're, they need to be able to see where they're landing, um, and they can only fly so high. So we need to make sure that clouds are not an issue. So that was one of the big limiting factors we had. So originally, we were supposed to fly out on a Saturday, which was the 4th, and we didn't fly out until nine days later. So you can kind of imagine if you were at an airport and, you know, you keep hearing about your flight getting delayed an hour or two at a time. Like, that's the kind of feeling you have to deal with. So like every morning we would wake up and we're like, all right, today's going to be the day. We'd go to the hangar, we would like have our weather apps open, you know, trying to figure out like, can we make it out today? Are we going to get stuck? And, you know, kind of day after day, we're hearing like, nope, it's not going to happen. And you understand because it's a safety issue. You know, you don't want to land if you can't see, you know, how close you are to the ice and safety is a priority. So we're kind of like, all right, this is really annoying. We understand, but like, 
by the ninth day, we were kind of going crazy. It takes an emotional toll you know, a little bit when like you're starting to get frustrated. And before we went into the fields, we had an almost day-to-day plan. So this was by no means anyone's like, or our planner's first experience. We had a field expert with us, but eventually we got into the helicopter and we're flying out into the field site. So, yay. So three of our members had been to the site before and then three of us were new. So we're getting close to the field site and I hear one of the PIs go, we should be here. Like where we're not seeing our equipment and arrays. And we put flags in the ground and eventually they're like, oh, well, there's our flags. Where's everything else? So we land and we realize that there was about a meter of snow accumulation. So we had anticipated, all right, it's the summer. We're probably not going to get that much snow accumulation. If anything, we were, you know, actually anticipating we might get um, a little bit of melt. Uh, that was not the case. So we landed at about 4 p.m. in the afternoon. Now we're so far north that the sun doesn't set. So thankfully we don't have to be worried about like, you know, um, the sun's going to set in an hour. We got to get tents up. But yeah, we landed and the first thing we had to do was, all right, let's find the shovels. So I think, yeah, we landed at four by like 11 p.m. I think we had our like food tent up, our sleeping tents up and the bathroom tent up. And by like, I think maybe two or 3 a.m. we finally decided to call in a night and go to sleep. But yeah, that first night in the tent, it's like, we, we threw out the original plan. And we're like, clearly like, there's not enough time to get things done um, that we want to. So since it took nine days to get into the field, we knew it may not be so easy getting back out of the field. You know, we can send them other reports and say, hey, no, the cloud base is actually much higher. You can land. But if there's fog, there's fog, they can't come. And this is later in the season. So by now we're at mid-August and, you know, we have students with us. We have to get back so they can attend classes. You know, we have other obligations. We can't stay out here indefinitely. Plus, you know, it's Greenland. Um, (laughs) There's not exactly a commercial flight every single day. So, you know, the longer you stay out there, the more risk you have of, I don't want to say getting stuck in Thule, but being unable to leave Thule. So we're like, we know that pushing back our um, pullout date is not really an option that we want to go with. It's something that we considered, but again, it's a safety issue. So yeah, the first time we had to sit down and be like, all right, realistically, how long is it going to take us to dig out um, food caches, dig out our instruments? Can we actually get the experiments done that we want to? So one of the things we were going to do was repeat an active source experiment with our small array of seismometers. But it turns out they got buried and their solar array stopped working. So we're like, all right, I guess we're not going to do that experiment because we don't exactly have time to recharge them and get them put back on. The biggest challenge was uh, these bear barrels that were full of food. Um, so instead of bringing out every single food item that we needed with us, the installation team left some behind. So these bear barrels, are they're not like the cute little one gallons that you can get at like REI. These are probably three and a half, four feet tall because they came up to my shoulder and you can't physically wrap your arms completely around them. So there may be, I don't know, two and a half feet in diameter. So I have a photo of my advisor who buried them. Um, And when he buried them, the hole he dug was probably up to his head. So you got to imagine that the barrels are probably about almost two meters below the surface. 
and then there's a meter of snow that just got buried. So it took two full days to just get them unburied to the point where we can screw the top off and get our food out. So the entire time we're doing this, we're thinking, just think of the butter. Like, just think of like the Oreos that are there. Like, <laughs> like yeah, we kind of turned into a little bit of Paula Dean with our obsession with butter, which I mean, cam food is an entire different podcast, I'm sure. But <laughs> that, that was our motivation is get to the hummus, get to the cheese, get to the chocolate. Once we got it unburied, it took all six of us to get these out of the ground. The ski dues were also a big issue. Um, so some of our instruments were a kilometer away. And you can't, I'm not saying it's impossible to walk it. It's just not feasible. And then with the equipment, it, it's just much easier to do the ski do. But when they're then buried a meter under the snow, you can't just dig a vertical hole. You have to dig a ramp to then get the ski dues up. So I think, I forget what the original budget was for how much time it would take to like, you know, dust off the equipment, which is what we were thinking because we thought it'd be at the surface, but it was seven total days of digging. So yeah, these guys had a lot of trials and tribulations, but I feel like one of that, that bad one, it was that delay, just that uh, flight delay. Like, have you ever had a really bad flight delay? You know, I, so I, I, I've been fortunate enough that I really haven't had really bad ones, but my worst one, and it was an overnight type deal, but it was O'Hare. Like the only time in my life I've ever been to O'Hare, I got delayed and had to sleep outside of bag and cl- baggage claim. Oh behind a kiosk you, on top of like my suitcases are you serious? i've never been back to o'hare since gross not happening gross yeah so not not quite this not as bad as angela but that definitely scarred me for life Ugh, ew. <laughs> so we have one last story um who comes from sarah strand at the university center in svalbard which is a norwegian archipelago near the north pole My name is Sarah Strand, and I'm a PhD candidate at the University Center in Svalbard. So I live on Svalbard full-time, and I'm also working as the executive director of the International Permafrost Association, and I study permafrost, not so surprisingly. Um, And I'm mainly focused on permafrost temperatures, so what's happening over the period of time that we have our data, which is about 10 years series now, as well as the dynamics in terms of the seasons as the active layer, which sits on top of the permafrost, is freezing and thawing with the summer and winter. Svalbard is an island that is halfway between Norway and the North Pole, and it is known to have more polar bears than people. And we're about 2,200 inhabitants here. I do live here year round, and there's a lot of science that happens with people who don't live here, but they come here for their field work. That's really common. But there's a core group of us based, some at the Norwegian Polar Institute, as well as some at the University Center here, that we actually live here full time. So I've lived here in August. It will be five years, actually, that I've lived here full time. And I love it. Anytime you're leaving the town limits in Longyearbyen and Svalbard, you need to have a rifle with you for polar bear protection. And it's, I would say it's fairly hard to forget entirely the rifle, but it has happened to me before and definitely other colleagues where there's quite a lot of routines of how to safely have the rifles on Svalbard. So when you're in town, you keep your, the bolt, which actually is 
the action that fires the rifle. You, you store that separately from the weapon. It's much safer that way, as well as the bullets. But of course, that means that sometimes it is possible to actually end up with a rifle and perhaps not the bolt, or maybe you have the rifle and the bolt, but not the bullets, which of course, you need all three pieces to have a, has a, have a functioning system. I've never had any dangerous encounters. And actually, at this closer field site, I've never seen a polar bear. Polar bears do come into this valley, but very rarely. And I've never been out when one has been there. So I luckily have not had any dicey situations in that regard. But there's also been situations on Svalbard where the weapons can actually freeze sometimes. If snow maybe gets on the gun and then it melts and then it sits outside, then it can freeze. And there's actually been some accidents where people have encountered a polar bear, needed to shoot, but then had a frozen weapon. Yeah, but luckily that has not ever happened to me. I'm no polar bear biologist, but at least from what I've heard and learned over the years, I do agree that they might actually seek out people, but I think it requires very special circumstances. So it needs to be the type of bear that's maybe more interested versus more scared of humans, as well as a time of year when they're really short on food and very hungry. And then they might really seek out people more. And definitely in, in Longyearbyen, people joke about like cabin bears, be, meaning certain polar bears that have learned over time that breaking into people's cabins is a good way and an easy way to find food. <laughs> and then these mother bears actually will teach their cubs that cabins are something you should break into. And then these families kind of are repeat offenders breaking into cabins. <laughs> so Shane, you are a biologist. I am. Have you had any encounters with uh, charismatic macrofauna that put your life at uh, in danger in any way? No, <laughs> I dealt with mainly uh, frogs, salamanders, and maybe a snapping turtle you'd have to be worried about once in a while, but nothing that you have to uh, carry a gun with you for. <laughs> Not usually, unless they're very large, very large turtles. <laughs> right. So, um, you know, the one thing that, that story that we often hear is that the most interesting thing that you can hear in science is not Eureka, but that's interesting. Uh, the idea that sometimes the things that we encounter in the lab or in the field that we think uh, are mishaps are indeed what teach us and lead us on the, the best uh, direction and really kind of help us uh, attain the best conclusions. So in many ways, these quote-unquote fieldwork mishaps or fails are really learning experiences. So it was really fun to put them together and to, to hear these scientists give their stories. I just, I want to bring Josh around with me all the time. It's a real uplifting Yeah, message. just be like, yeah. Shane, like you did, that wasn't a failure. You did really well. It's a learning moment. <laughs> I'm, here, I'm here for you guys. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, that's all from Third Pod from the Sun. Thank you so much to Josh and Lauren and Olivia and Katie for bringing us all of these great stories um, and producing this episode. And of course, thanks to all of the scientists for sharing their work with us. And thanks to Kayla Suri for producing this episode. AGU would love to hear your thoughts on our podcast. Please rate and review us. Um, and you can always find new episodes wherever you get your podcasts and at thirdpodfromthesun.com. All right. Thanks all. And we'll see you next time.